This is the Six O'Clock Swill, a wowser-free zone for the articulation of ideas that others are too frightened even to think for fear of being hauled in by the thought police or banned from posting pictures of last night's dinner on Facebook. I'm Nick Cater, Tim Blair and Fred Paul are stretching their calf muscles and fitting in their mouth guards, ready to join me from the bench while Simon Collins is on leave on a COVID-19 fishing trip to Wales. On the podcast today, Novak Djokovic and other bad puns. What next for the Serbian fibster? Anyone for president? Republican buffhead Peter Fitzsimons runs a dumb idea up the flagpole and nobody salutes. And we'll be joined by the human jukebox, Alan Howe, to discuss the 50th anniversary of Joe Cocker's deportation and other celebrity immigration stuff-ups. But first, to the jockster. And as we record this podcast, we await a decision from Immigration Minister Alex Hawke as to whether the world's tennis number one's visa will be cancelled for a second time and probably a final time. Fred, I hear this court action has already cost the government more than half a million dollars, which is cheap, let's face it, in terms of buying Australia worldwide publicity. Oh, mate, I reckon that's only, that, that's only a portion of the expenses that are being incurred by the government. They are spending a fortune on on uh, focus groups that are being uh, assembled at very short notice. You can't. That's not a cheap. Uh, it's not a cheap exercise to do. So you know, getting twenty or thirty ordinary Australians into a room at short notice to ask them whether or not the government should deport Novak Djokovic uh, probably costs a lot in pizza and beer and uh, cash in hand. They might be cutting the costs by using Twitter as their focus group. By the looks of things. Yeah. <laughs> They're following it. They're following that trend pretty closely. They do seem to have the public behind them. There's no great backlash, as far as I can see, apart from the Serb community and the Novaks community, you know, against any move to throw him out. There might be if it gets a bit more serious. I mean, we're speaking obviously on Friday. It's a, a it's in advance of any um, any uh, decision from Alex Hawke. I think the um, Serb. Serbian Australian population in Melbourne is about twenty four thousand people, and um, uh, it might be uh, an interesting response uh, if it were to be announced uh, late on Friday or over the weekend. Even if uh, it were to be announced that uh, Novak was to be thrown out, I think it's an interesting contrast to what happened in nineteen fifty four. Back but, to your early days as a, <laughs> as a reporter. <laughs> when I, when I was a Melbourne cadet. Argus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, no, in 1954, a, a member of the Soviet embassy, um, Petrov, was mm-hmm. being uh, sent back to Russia and he was afraid that he was going to get killed by the KGB. So there was this crisis in Australia. Should we allow Petrov and his wife to be sent back to what could have been certain death in, um, in a firing squad um, back in back in uh, Soviet Russia. And the Australian people, to their credit, rallied and were, um, you know, proud of the fact that Australia was a freer country and should, should prevent these people from being um, sent back to a totalitarian regime. It seems to me, I don't know how you guys feel, but it seems to me like the tables have turned, that... You know, we have become the totalitarian country uh, that wants to punish a tennis player for some fairly minor offences that endangered no one. But we want to kick this bloke out because we are just embedded in moral outrage at his uh, at his nerve for coming into this country. My view has changed on this over the week, Fred. I, I mean, I, I started the week, you know, thinking, well, live and let live. You know, let him stay. If that's the court decision, let it be. I mean, he's an entertaining tennis player, 
for a start. And, um, you know, as you say, I mean, the threats to him being here, I mean, with hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of new cases a day here, it's hard to see that he's going to add to those by knocking the ball, you know, an infected ball into the crowd. <laughs> you, know, you remember Nicholas Spurrier in, uh, in South Australia exactly. warned football fans of just this danger that a, yeah. a, a COVID-laden football yes. may go into the crowd. But look, realistically, you don't think he's going to add much to the, uh, the threat to ordinary people. Uh, so oh, where's yeah. the damage? Can, but, can you catch COVID by watching him on television? Oh, probably, <laughs> especially in Western Australia. <laughs> I think that the broadcast will be delayed in Western Australia <laughs> as a prophylactic measure. Uh, but uh, my views changed over the week because it, it did come down to the fact that he now seems to have fibbed or lied, should we say, on his on his immigration form, filled in a, a false information, and but then signed it. Who's never lied to a bureaucrat? Mm. Who's never lied to? I mean. I, I can I can uh, boldly and uh, uh, announce here um, on this very podcast that I lied to get into Western Australia one time last year. It's a, it's a statute expired on that one, mate. Are you um, are you safe? As a statute of limitations timed out. Come and timed come out. and get me, McGowan. I'll, I'll send you. I'll text you my text him my address. Well, arrest this man on yeah, air. Yeah. No, but the the, th- the thing is, if they do come after you, that's that might be the only way to get back into WA. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- th- there's actually a sad angle to that because you know I I, I would dearly dearly love to go to WA because. Um, you know, my 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 mum passed away last year, and and yeah. uh, my dad is now alone for the first time in sixty two years. And I would dearly love to go back and just spend some time with him, hanging out and keeping him company. Uh, but yeah. I'm not allowed to. And and when I lied to get into Western Australia last year, uh, two things about it. One was I knew I wasn't contagious, so I wasn't actually. You'd taken tests immediately prior. I'd taken tests. That's right. I'd done. P- I'd done. Two PCR tests just to make absolute sure that I wasn't going to be, you know, um, post facto uh, proven to have started some sort of outbreak, uh, and and I don't regret it for a second. Even if the even if the West Australian um, police do come looking for me, I would never regret it because it was one of the last times I got to spend time with my mum. Mm. So mm. you know, mm. um, come get me, come and get me. I'll be waiting for you. I just think it is it is fascinating that we've got a situation where we're testing hundreds of thousands of Australians are testing positive every day, and we're trying to throw out the one bloke we know doesn't have COVID. It's extraordinary, exactly. isn't it? Uh, later on, I think we'll be talking to Ellen Howe, making the comparison between this case and the deportation of Joe Cocker in 1972, who was arrested for drugs. Cocker, of course, was in trouble for taking drugs. This man's in trouble for not taking drugs. I, look, I go back to the point, I mean, is it okay? This is the great moral dilemma that Fred set up. Is it okay to lie to public officials? Uh, I'd like to say yes, but I think probably not. I mean, we all fill out that form and we get back. Now we did tick the box to say you haven't been to, you know, darkest Africa and picked up a, a wooden oh. voodoo doll uh, laden with rabies or something. Um, and, you, you know, you, you, you do tick the box or you don't tick the box. And I think you should be held accountable for that. I, I returned once from the US, just a just a, a, a custom story here, but I returned once from the US with um, a collection of soup cans, full soup cans. A friend of mine in the US um, was a graphic designer and he had a hobby of making fake soup can labels, and he would put them on standard Heinz cans of soup. 
But these labels were things like, you know, instead of tomato soup or potato and leek or whatever, they were crickets and beans and tobacco. And uh, and he would put these on supermarket shelves, much to the puzzlement <laughs> of the customers. And, uh, and he did this in the era before YouTube or anything like that. So it wasn't, you know, to get shocked reactions on camera. He just did it for the spirit of fun. Anyway, he gave me a bunch of them. I still have them. When I brought them back to Australia, the customs officer was puzzled and he stared at these cans, you know, crickets and beans, and tobacco and placenta, like he couldn't, it was, it was weirding him out. And he said, we're going to have to open these up. And I said, no, 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 they're, they're art, you know, they're never going to be open. They're just soup cans. He says, but, you know, they're obviously ridiculous. I'm going to have to open them up to check the contents. And I said, if, if they said tomato soup, would you open them? And he said, no, good point. Go right through. That's all done. <laughs> <laughs> but just to get back to your point, Nick, that uh, there are rules, I think, that, uh, that are justifiably broken. I mean, our entire legal system, people tend to forget this, our entire legal system is based on, the, uh, on weighing up the pros and cons of breaking laws. So the, the punishment for certain laws is is uh, formulated on how bad that law is. And as a citizen of, of a liberal democracy, you're actually free to break that law if you want and cop the penalty if you get caught. There is no hard and fast rule saying that as a citizen of the country, you're not allowed to break the laws. You are. Yeah. You are free to break the laws and cop the penalty if you get caught, if you're dumb enough to get caught. Yeah. Or, or, or in my case, if you're dumb enough to announce that you, you did break the law on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, moving on to other events of the week, and uh, we now have another proposal for Republic. Uh, this is Pete from Peter Fitzsimons, the head of the uh, Republican League. He thinks that this one's an absolute winner, that I think 90% of people will love the idea, he said. Um, uh, this is, of course, Australia voted against a Republic, 55 to 45, in the uh, 1999 referendum. Since then, the popularity of Republic has only gone backwards. Uh, the Queen has gone forwards. In the latest poll by the Australian election study found that the Queen has a 43% approval rating up from 30% uh, 20 years ago. That's pretty good, a 43% approval rate when, when you think that Joe Biden, perhaps the most important uh, in president in the free world, only has a 33% approval rating. But it, it, it was a spectacularly, spectacularly badly timed and badly framed announcement by Simons, which has even raised the ire of Paul Keating. Now, if you pull forward a proposal for Republic and Paul Keating doesn't like it, you know, give up, go home, I would have thought. <laughs> it's, well, he didn't just not like it. He said it was a positive danger to democracy in Australia. Uh, you've got to keep in mind, I guess, that they've had more than 20 years to work out some solution to um, whether we go a direct election model or an appointed equivalent of the Governor-General, and they've come up with this ridiculous, each each state and each territory nominates up to three people, and then it goes to a committee that vets them for being left or right-handed, or, um, or whether they've got a, an appropriate sense of balance, or whatever the hell, and uh, and then it goes, then it narrows down to 11 people, and then it goes to a, a vote 
of the people. You know, by the way, it's compulsory to vote. It would be compulsory to vote under this this model. So, which means that you would get fined if you didn't vote for someone who has no powers to do anything, which seems absurd. Theoretically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Theoretically. Isn't this a bit like what we read about in China? They have elections, but the only candidates are the ones hand-picked by the politicians. You've got to vote for them. You can't vote for any others. Isn't that where we're at? I mean, we've got, we're going to be offered a range of candidates. You can vote for any of them, but politicians have chosen all of them. It's but surely, a surely someone with a, with a big load of money could come in and, and railroad the, the, the process, couldn't they? Well, that, that's one, one way of... Uh, I mean, there's so many ways to subvert this when you look at it. It's beautiful. But, and I would love for that, you know, from that point of view, I'd, I'd love for it to actually happen once just to see how it worked. But you've got a situation where, uh, you know, Fitzsimons is saying under this model it would ban, it would forbid someone like, say, Shane Warne from being elected. How? How would it do that? Let's say Warren was to be nominated. Why? Yeah, Isn't he you know? just the kind of president Australia needs? Well, they're saying in all their promotions for this, they're saying that we want our best and brightest to be nominated. Why would you sequester our best and brightest in a, in a role where they can't do anything? They can have no policy input by the definition of the role. I mean, it, it, this gets back to... A, I had a chat once to Fitzsimons about all this crap uh, a few years ago. And he said something like, you know, if you had a kid, wouldn't you want that child to you know, one day be the most, you know, powerful person in Australia. And I was like, I've never heard of any child whose ambition it was to be the Governor General. I thought you were referring to the captain of the Australian cricket team. Yeah, I know, yeah, that, you know, that you'd want. But you don't want some stupid kid. By the way, you're still on cricket. I know this is this is a, uh, a kind of a, uh, be a time-dated thing, being given that it's Friday for this recording. But I'm just watching... Um, Australia playing on a pitch that's greener than Malcolm Turnbull and just as helpful to Australia at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while we're on the topic of cricket and the Republic, someone commented under your blog this week, Tim, that that selecting the the, uh, president was a a doddle. All you have to do is is the the outgoing captain of the Australian cricket team assumes the presidency (laughs) until until the captaincy changes and the next one pops in line. That'd be fine. But the, the fascinating thing is there's been this backlash against uh, uh, against this ridiculous model. Several articles in the Oz especially have torn it to pieces. Uh, Paul Keating obviously has, has come out and said it's a, it's a pile of crap. But the Australian Republican Movement's Twitter feed in response has adopted this North Korean sort of propaganda model of just denying it's all happening. I'll just read one of... I mean, it reads like North Korean propaganda. I'll just read you one, um, one post they put up uh, yesterday. Great news! The Australian choice model has been received with exceptional support from the media, our supporters and the Australian public. <laughs> oh, wow! Okay. <laughs> exceptional. Comical. That's comical, Ali. It is. It's right there. I'm with Greg Craven from the Oz on this. He Great wrote, piece, He buddy. wrote this morning, After years of cogitation, they have produced a model so incoherent, complex and downright wrong, it makes Sydney's traffic system look like a masterpiece of design. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. Craven is a constitutional lawyer. He knows what he's talking about, which um, makes him different to most of the Australian Republican movement. But he goes through in detail why this proposal will alienate every kind of interested group. Not that I think there's a great deal of interest in the um, Republic anyway, uh, much less so since Fitzsimons took over and uh, set about destroying it. 
You said that uh, it'd be good just for this to, to go through this process just once, just to see how it works. Mate, I reckon mm. it'd be worth it just to see what West Australia throws up as their three candidates. <laughs> be Ben Cousins, um, ben, yeah. Twiggy. Benny. Kevin, Kevin Bloody Wilson. Is he from WA or am I getting him mixed up? No, you, you, you might be other. thinking of Rolf Harris, mate. Well, Rolf <laughs> well, Harris would make an excellent does, does, it, does, does pedophilia exclude you from this list? <laughs> How bad are the progressives? I mean, they just have to do this, don't they? They've got to look for their cause every three years coming up to an election. Something a Labour government can adopt to show that it's more progressive than the other side. And it's the tired old republic yet again, which doesn't surely... Even the unlikely chance a referendum question was asked that the Australian public are going to completely change their view and vote for it. It's just not going to happen, is it? So what's the point? Uh, I think there's a fair bit of ego involved in this, not surprisingly. I think, you know, uh, when, you, when you're so divorced from um, issues that are kind of pressing at the moment, uh, such as, you know, the economy being stopped... When you're so divorced from that that you think it's a good idea right now to launch the world's most complicated uh, Republican proposal, you're not really uh, you're not really talking to Australia, are you? Well, let's take a break now and we'll be back afterwards with Alan Howe talking about great moments in deportation history. This week, Spectator has an editorial which begins not since the deportation of Joe Cocker in the dying days of Billy McMahon's government has there been a celebrity immigration farce as shambolic as the saga involving Novak Djokovic. Uh, that is quite a moment in history. Uh, look, join us on the podcast is a man who uh, remembers that well. In fact, I think you were in the hotel with Joe Cocker when he was arrested, if I'm not mistaken. Welcome, Alan Howe. Uh, g'day, Nick. How are you, mate? Yes, I'm good. Alan, I should, for people who are unfamiliar with you, and there won't be many, but you were a very distinguished editor with News Limited, notably of the Sunday Herald Sun, the most successful Sunday newspaper, the fastest growing Sunday newspaper in the history of the planet, I think. But you were notable for your interest in music, in rock music, and you still are. Do you, what do you remember about that day? Well, I think it was October, wasn't it, 1972, if I'm not mistaken, when Joe Cocker was arrested in a Melbourne hotel and uh, in a drug fueled rage and subsequently deported. I'm not too sure it was drug fueled. Um, uh, it was certainly alcohol fueled. He'd been arrested uh, about four or five days earlier um, in Adelaide, which probably was a setup. Um, yeah, they were they were out to um, uh, to cane him uh, because they didn't like the idea that he had uh, long hair. Um, and couldn't sing, uh, so they 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 knocked on his door at his hotel in South Australia, and um, said, "Are there any drugs here?" And he said, "Yeah, I think there's some about." Thinking that they might be customers, I assume. <laughs> so he, he happily he happily showed them uh, a, a, a store of um, what they called Indian hemp, and they were uh, charged uh, on summons and uh, fined three hundred dollars. And each the five of them, and that was the end of that. But he came to Australia. They came to Melbourne. Um, went to the at, at a place called the Chateau Commodore, a funny place for a rock band stage. <laughs> a really second division hotel was back then, probably still is, um, and a funny place for them to stay. But they again attracted the attention of the Victoria Police. Um, one, you know, gets the idea that there might have been somebody uh, after them, and uh, this time they were just drunk after a show. Um, and they had compacted the uh, the schedule, and they'd done two shows that night. 
Um, and uh, anyway, they were, they were drunk and there was a fracas and there's a very famous picture in, the, in what was called then the Sun newspaper. Uh, the next day, we, we uh, at the Sun had been alerted that this was going to happen. Um, and we took a very famous photograph of uh, these two you know, fairly large police in uh, shirts and ties at 1am, uh, bundling poor old Joe Cocker uh, out to a, to a court, a late night sitting. Um, and he was given by Jim Falls. Do you remember Jim, Nick? Yeah. I think he was, I think he was the last... Before he passed away, only about two or three years ago, I think he was the last surviving Menzies government minister. He was. Anyway, he was then Minister for Immigration. He passed through, um, he'd been Minister for the Army uh, before Fraser and the Minister for the Navy when we didn't have a Defence Minister. We had Ministers for each of the uh, forces. Um, anyway, Jim Forbes, I believe he later said, um, told his daughter that under instruction he was to kick um, Cocker out of the country. and. Joe Cocker was given four hours to get on a plane at Salamarine. Yeah, because the big, the big contrast with this occasion was uh, Cocker was accused of using drugs. Novak Djokovic, of course, is in trouble for not using drugs. But uh, that says something about our censorious times. But in both instances, I think it became a sort of amusing story to follow the rest of the world. The rest of the world was a bit puzzled by how Australia could carry on like this. Do you recall it that way? Yeah, well, we, we were um, a very conservative country. Um, you know, we had a, um, we had a, a, a prime minister, um, probably the least deserving prime minister we've ever had, and there's been some competition for that title in recent uh, years. But um, uh, Billy McMahon, um, you know, was never going to win the election on December the 2nd, uh, 1972. And uh, this was October, so we were coming towards a, a head uh, and clearly, um, he thought, well, in fact, he, he was uh, all over radio and TV uh, on the day that Cocker was expelled from Melbourne, um, you know, saying, well, this is, a, this is a great victory for us and, and for common sense uh, and for normal people. Um, and he reckoned, he was asked then, well, do you think that might you know, cause some damage to you for the election? He said, oh, I don't think so. He, he said, it's only um, solid, you know, rust, we, these days would say rusted on, rusted on uh, Labor voters who will be offended. How did it, Howie, how did it go down with the readers? I mean, what, what was the mood of the country at the time? Because, you know, Whitlam stormed home in 72, soon afterwards. You know, were, were Aussies kind of sympathetic to this pot-smoking um, singer from, from Sheffield? No, they weren't. Um, right. uh, it, it seems astonishing now. Um, and, uh, they, but they, no, they, Australians took a fairly hard line about um, people coming to Australia um, bringing um, illegal drugs here and consuming them. Um, it wasn't a common practice, I don't think, from my memories of, uh, of those years. Um, I saw an interview with, um, with him later where he said, look, um, in five years' time, uh, this bloke who's kicking me out of the country, he'll be smoking marijuana. I never had the opportunity to ask Jim Ford if that, if that took place. I doubt it very much. <laughs> Alan, mate, as, uh, as someone who grew up in Melbourne myself, the first, you know, I was probably too young to appreciate all of the Joe Cocker drama, but um, I do remember listening to radio broadcasts of football matches and commentators would say when a player soared for a high mark that he was higher than Joe Cocker. I never had any idea what they meant. <laughs> but um, it, it is, um, it's unusual, that although all the circumstances have changed, as Nick's pointed out, you know, taking drugs versus not taking drugs, the... Um, the overwhelming public sentiment seems to be the same way. Kick him out. Yeah, um, uh, it was. And it, what's interesting about the Joe Cocker uh, event, Rex Hunt, by the way, uh, uh, 
uh, used that line, um, higher than Joe Cocker. Mm. What was interesting about him was that he held no, despite the fact that he was victimised here, uh, he didn't hold a grudge about it. He quite liked Australia. He certainly liked Australians. In fact, Roger Davis, who um, um, uh, managed the comeback of Tina Turner, at that stage was managing the band Sherbet. Um, and he ended up ma uh, managing um, uh, Cocker. Um, Kudinski signed him mm. to his label. So all in the, in the last 10 years of his life, all Joe Cocker albums came out of Australia. They were, they were actually, you know, we, we were the publishers um, and the, the, the um, owners of the record company. Um, and uh, he, um, he came to Australia another 11 times after that arrest in 1972. I met him in 2004. Uh, it was a Saturday afternoon. Michael Gudinski called me and said, look, um, you know, we've got Joe Cocker. He's doing a show tonight, Saturday. Uh, he's doing one on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Sales are a bit slow. Could you put it, you know, could you do something in the paper? And I said, well, sure. I said, get him, get him into the office. It's a Saturday afternoon. I said, bring him over to the office and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do up a picture of Joe Cocker in Melbourne and, you know, I'll run it on page three or five maybe. And uh, so Ganinsky brought him into the office at the Herald Sun on the Yarra, obviously. And uh, I had gone down to the Yarra to speak to the bloke who owns a little steamboat there. And I said, mate, um, Joe Cocker's going to come in about half an hour. Um, what we want is you to sail your little steamboat under the, the, the walk bridge there and we'll take a picture of him waving at us. Well, yeah, something like that. Anyway, he said, oh, okay. Well, he said, I'll, I'll cancel services for the next hour. And he did. He waited an hour. And um, so <laughs> Cocker turns up with Ganinsky. And we go down to the Yarra, and um, am I allowed to swear, Nick? Yes. He yes. said, um, I'm not getting on any fucking boat. Um, <laughs> and we took, it, it took us an hour to convince him to get on his boat. He was absolutely frightened. He'd nev he never got on boats. He was, he, was, he was absolutely paranoid about it. But he turned out, it was a good bloke, and we had a long chat about 1972, and he sort of looked back on it with great humour. Well, if you told him, mate, that uh, the steam was actually smoke, he might have gone for it. Uh, just, <laughs> you, just you pulled the wrong rein on that one, Alan. Just by the way, we were just talking before uh, we began recording, and uh, and uh, we were wondering if you have ever gone head to head with Glenn A. Baker, the uh, the so-called rock brain of the universe. I spoke to Glenn just two or three hours ago. He's a very good friend of mine. Uh -huh. um, uh, I listened to the rock brain of the universe. It was broadcast on the BBC. Yep. And um, he won it three times. Yeah, that's right. And I was in London. I, I certainly heard the first one. I remember it very clearly. And I pretended to be um, the first, whoever was the first DJ they, they, they had on. Mm. There were three or four people. And uh, so I thought, I'll take his questions. And um, and I stayed up to speed with Glenn. And on the first Rock Run of the Universe, Glenn won on a question about Roy Wood from Wizard. And what other band, what band had he been in recently? And I had seen Helicopter at a thing called the Tramship Theatre in Woolwich the week before. And I, yeah, I shouted out at my radio, Helicopter! And Glenn said, Helicopter! <laughs> and won. This, this is like talking to someone from another another planet sometimes, honestly, Howie. You know, Helicopter. What was the other things you, all the other things you were mentioning as though these are sort of household names that we should be deeply familiar with? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, can, Howie, can I test your uh, your knowledge on matters rock and roll in Melbourne? This is a uh, an anecdote I heard some years ago. Just to segue back to the late great Michael Gadinsky, who was a who was a wonderful bloke. But I heard this is not unrelated to the Joe Cocker story. I once heard about twenty years ago that Gadinsky flew back from the United States and inadvertently 
had a little bit of uh, um, green foliage in his pocket that he'd forgotten about, and uh, customs saw it and were and he got busted for it, and he through his connections, managed to keep it out of the Herald Sun. Have you heard that story before? I've heard a lot of stories about Michael over the years, and I was involved in a few too. Um, but no, I haven't heard that. Um, and uh, I can't imagine that the Herald Sun would have let its standard slip um, to, uh, to, to, to deny its readers the opportunity of reading about that thread, surely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it did, <laughs> it did seem un, unusual to me. But, I mean, Gadinsky did kind of... Uh, he he carried a lot of a lot of power. In oh, he did, and uh, mm. and rest assured, yeah. uh, Michael uh, was a mate of mine since 1973, and um, you know, and he changed Melbourne. He did. Very few people yep. can say they've changed yep. the city, um, but Michael changed Melbourne. Um, and some of the, you know, we were talking about a tennis player a minute ago. Well, I'm not sure that the tennis centre would have been built without Michael's ability to fill it up regularly with 10,000 punters at rock shows. That's a very good point. That's a very, very good point. Yeah, when he died a couple of years ago, there was a big sign outside the ESPY saying, you know, lamenting his demise, because... Uh, you know, that was only March the 2nd last year. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Alan, you... you, you um, I, look, I, I credit you with inventing the concept that led to Spotify and Apple iTunes. Um, you very kindly invited me over to dinner. Oh, we're talking about the early 90s here. I think you lived in a converted butcher shop, as I recall, in Carlton. Or yeah, yeah. And every wall in the house, as I recall, every wall, uh, even the dunny, uh, was lined with shelves of vinyl. You had the biggest collection ever. And your trick, your party trick, as I recall, was to ask the guest what they'd like to hear. Uh, and they'd have the obliga obligation on the guest to pick pick something either you didn't have or you hadn't heard of, uh, but uh, you'd then turn up and play it, much like <laughs> Spotify works now. But uh, I don't know whether you recall what, what I asked you uh, to play. I thought, well, I've got him here. I, I think it was Splodginous Abounds. You're right. Two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please. <laughs> it's the name of the song by a band called Splodginous Abounds. I thought... He's never going to have this. <laughs> never, ever. Before I could pour myself a, another glass of red, you had it on the turntable. <laughs> About a week later, Peter Blunden was over at our house and uh, he, he uh, tried a similar test and said, you, want, you will not have, um, I want to have a beer with Duncan. But I did. <laughs> well, who doesn't have that? Australians of a certain vintage, we always have, you know, uh, as, a true as well Australian. as at least one Sandusky LP. <laughs> We always have Carol King's Tapestry and one of the about 50 versions of Joe Crocker's greatest hits. They're just, uh, I think they're issued at birth in Australia. Mm, yeah. uh, Alan, um, you sound in great form, which is terrific. Uh, a number of my friends are getting over their bouts of COVID, or as they call it, the day the mucus died. How has um, the COVID experience impacted uh, your world? Are you, how are you going okay? Yeah, well, I, I live alone um, in Little Collins Street, so I'm in a, mm, um, yeah. an Art Deco apartment now in the CBD, which is terrific. Uh, I, don't get, I don't see many people. I see my, um, my wife and kids a couple of times a week, uh, but um, I, I don't see many people, so I, I haven't mm -hmm. been exposed to um, COVID myself. My godson was uh, diagnosed with it a couple of days ago. We saw him on Christmas Day. Um, and uh, uh, I spoke to um, a good mate of mine, also a, a big fan of music, Andrew Proben from the yep. ABC. I spoke to him this morning, um, and I don't think uh, I'm uh, divulging any secrets by saying that he has been struck down by COVID-19 and his wife and his children, um, and I think they got it 
they think they got it on Boxing Day at the, at the Test Cricket. But they're doing okay? Yes, yeah, they're, they're, they're all coming good, um, and uh, uh, which is good news. But um, uh, I, I think um, I, I was just, I walked down the street about an hour ago, um, and uh, you know, everybody here is wearing masks, and um, you know, if they're like me, they're going through uh, both, um, you know, uh, soap and, um, and you know, um, the, the, the various other things that clean your hands and face regularly. Leeches. <laughs> so it's it's um, it's uh, I think I think we've we've got it under control. To to what degree you can control this Omicron, I don't know. Um, I spoke to the treasurer a couple of days ago, um, and he said, uh, you know, yeah, crikey, um, you know, because he's um has been struck down with it. I think his wife too, um, and uh, he's been quite crook. Um, but it's just a fact of life for so many people every day. We're, we're recording this on Friday, just for the listeners. So um, the, the result, the outcome, may well be known by the time um, by the time this is uh, is aired to a greedy public. But um, how do you think things are going to go with the Djokovic deportation and or or, or not deportation? What's the mood in Melbourne? Australia is, um, uh, has been quite reluctant to deport people, um, and we, we've and we've uh, admitted people with very serious criminal histories, including murder. Um, and uh, we're very reluctant to, um, uh, to expel people. And I checked the figures um, about 18 months ago. And um, as for citizens, we had only, since 1949, when the Citizenship Act was passed, we had only canceled the citizenship of 20 people, seven of them in the era of Dutton. Wow. wow, and uh, that's you know it's it's terrible the people we've allowed in and the people we haven't kicked out. Um, I mean, uh, Djokovic, I think um, you know he, he is now blaming his staff for errors on his submission when he entered the country. Now, no one else would get away with that. Um, we don't have staff, obviously. We we you know we we tick our own boxes because we're able. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I think on that basis, you know, he should be kicked out. I, I was thinking today, who else are we kicked out? The last person I can remember being expelled from Australia was the whiskey or go go bomber, uh, James Finch. What about um, what about Dusty's dad? Didn't we kick Dusty's dad, uh, Dustin Martin's dad out? Oh, yeah, we, we we sent him back to New Zealand. But yeah, the whiskey yeah. go go guy. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. did indeed. But I mean, this is this is an interesting. Uh, how you say that? You know, we should kick him out. Is that a, is that an appropriate punishment though? I mean, really, if if you tick the wrong box in some bureaucratic form, not not one, not one, Fred, two. Is that the cut off then? Two boxes. <laughs> but I mean, really, the punishment for for Djokovic is you know some sort of international humiliation and the uh, and him being prevented from defending. He's Australian, so-called open. I think open is probably a, an inappropriate word for the... It's the Australian closed. He's competing in the Australian closed. Yeah. The Australian closed. Um, he's defending his title of the Australian closed. You, you know, I mean, the, an analogy I'd like to make is, say, for example, you're driving down the street and you break the speed limit. Well, there's a fine for that. And uh, you are fined because you are endangering other people and you're taking a risk. But nothing bad happens of it, so you get a slap on the wrist. If you kill a pedestrian, then you go to jail for reckless driving and so on. So, I mean, everyone seems to be uh, um, 
measuring uh, Djokovic's crime as if he came into Australia and started some sort of pandemic outbreak. He's done nothing of a sort. He's healthy. He's not going to um, spread the disease because he's he, he, not only is he healthy, he's got natural immunity. So what, what, what crime has he really committed and what punishment should he get? Well, there's a couple of things that he, there, there are some gaps in the story. Um, he appears not to have uh, the paperwork, which is uh, freely available and, and in, in, in Europe is currency um, as good as an inoculation. Um, he appears not to have been able to provide the, the, um, the certificate to show that he had COVID-19 both in 2020, in June 2020, and then uh, contracted again on December the 16th. Um, if you can provide that paperwork, they give you um, uh, they give you a certificate to say when, when you're COVID positive and you've recovered. In Europe, you get a certificate, a, a recovery certificate, um, and you can use that like a vaccination certificate. Um, he didn't have one. Maybe he left it at home. Maybe he left it back in Serbia um, or Spain, which he travelled yeah. to and sort of forgot to mention on the form coming into Australia. I think you can look at it and say. It's administrative dysfunction. Um, you know, it's, a, it's pretty ugly to see the, a bloke taken off a plane and sent to a, um, a you know, a, a hotel uh, under police guard. But then what do you say to the next person off the same plane with the same issues? Yeah. Um, but, they, but they happen not to be tennis players. I think that's a fair point. Look, uh, finally, Alan, just to return to your, your first love, music, music. So it's tempting to, to always think that, that you grow up in the best era. Um, but I think when it comes to music, I think it seems to me more and more that that's probably unarguable that, that people like yourself and me uh, grew up in the 60s, 70s. That was a very special period for popular music that has never been replicated since. And... Um, and perhaps vindication of that is that, that um, you know, so many people today are going back, not just to vinyl, but to those great albums of that period that uh, they buy and listen to on vinyl. When did music die, if it ever did? 1996. <laughs> and two things, two things happened. Um, music, pop music was auto-tuned out of existence. Auto-tune was invented in 94, mm. and it took off like wildfire. And um, uh, and then everything was auto-tuned thereafter. So no singer ever makes a mistake. The the um, the knotty imperfections um, of the human hand uh, were removed in 1994, and by 1996, no single on charts ever was not auto-tuned. It's interesting to look at the um, the top one, uh, the top 200 albums in um, uh, in Billboard for for the year-end charts, um, and. When it comes to rock bands, as in four or five uh, rock musicians playing in a band with you know real uh, instruments, um, the top three albums on the Billboard 200 in rock bands in 2021, number one, it came at number 67, mm. but the highest placed rock band was Queen, greatest hits from 1981. The second one was... Um, uh, Fleetwood Mac, Rumours from 1977, mm -hmm. and the third was Nirvana, 994, the year that uh, rock music almost died. Um, never mind. That's extraordinary. And that will never happen again. And the fourth was 
Slim Dusty's love to have a beer with Grunt. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for joining us, Howie, and uh, and maybe you can help me out with my um my very topical tribute band I'm trying to get up at the moment, Air Supply Chain. If um, you're able to <laughs> able to get some copy going on that, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> It's been a delight to speak to you all, and uh, it's almost like seeing you again. Yeah, it's as close as we get these days. <laughs> very soon, if we can get you out of hiding there in Little Collins Street. But Alan, thanks very much for joining us on Six O'Clock Squirrel. Thanks for inviting me, Nick. Alan Howe. Now, Tim... Remind me, there was a time, wasn't there, when Australia was not a place where you had to show your papers to go from state to state, you know, where you had to fill in a form and have injections and medical examinations simply to get across the border to Coolangatta. There were surely, surely we were once a much tougher place than that. I, I call that era 2019. And uh, it was a far distant and, uh, and not remembered time. But go back further. Let's go back a couple of decades further to, um, as you correctly identified during our chat with Alan, the 1970s, the finest of times. I've been reading this week about a place called Action Park. This was a New Jersey amusement park that routinely injured and occasionally killed people. That was almost its selling point. I urge everyone, there's a lovely book about it written by the son of the park's owner, who seems to have been a lunatic, but... His impulses were correct. His park featured rides that um, allowed the participants to have an active role. You actually got to steer things and, you know, you weren't just strapped into into a roller coaster and then sent spinning around. You actually had some control over these rides. It didn't always end well. Uh, They had one particular water slide that had a loop at the end of it. They sent one guy down as a test. He came out okay. The second guy went in headfirst into the side of the uh, ride. Uh, he came out minus several teeth. And the third guy came out <laughs> bleeding because he'd been gored by one of the teeth that was embedded in the side of the ride. <laughs> but the best ride of all, and it's mentioned in beautiful detail, I'll only give you a summary of it here. The best ride of all never actually made it. They never actually went ahead with it. It was called the Bailey Ball, and it was a large... Ball had a door on it made of heavy plastic and you got in and there was a little seat there. You sat in the ball and the seat, by some mechanism, it would remain in place. You would be sitting upright while the ball revolved around you. And uh, they did one test run of this. They put it up the side of a mountain and they had a zigzagging course that the ball would roll down. And the course was, you know, lined with uh, with uh, barricades to, to keep the Bailey ball rolling along and not not going out of control. At the very first corner, it jumped the the rails and cascaded down the mountain, 600 feet of mountain, by the way. The the device got up to such a speed that it overwhelmed the mechanism that kept the rider in place. They could see the guy, because it had windows, they could see the guy screaming, but because he was inside and the things all closed, they couldn't hear him, so it was this horror movie. And um, he couldn't bail because the door unlocked only from the outside, so he couldn't jump out. The device ended up crashing through a bunch of stuff. It jumped a freeway, ended up in a lake. They pulled the guy out bleeding, 
And at that point, everyone's just gone, you know, this probably needs a bit more work. <laughs> but, but, but that park remained open for some, several years. And it was, it was, it was its, its official name was Action Park, but it was known in New Jersey as Class Action Park, Accident <laughs> Park. It had all these great names. And seriously, the more I read this book, the more I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm a bit old now, but shave a few years off. I would have been in that queue, I tell you what. That, there, was a, there was some fun things to be had back in the day. Kids these days don't, don't grow up uh, experiencing danger at all, do they? Oh, no, the idea of something like this happening, no. I remember going to the Royal Show in the 70s when I was a kid in Perth. And there was an apparatus there, I've forgotten what the name of it was, but it was this, this circular thing where you, mm. everyone would file in and stand, stand around the inside of this, this large circular thing and it would just spin yeah. round and round at a really fast <laughs> rate and you'd be pinned yeah. against the wall and that was the thrill, right? But this is, yeah. this is the royal show and you've got yeah. kids, you know, kids, kids go on this ride and they're full of fairy floss and Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so the, 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 uh, the dilemma was that when they, when they finally vomited... <laughs> It yeah. just, it just, they vomited out and it just came straight back at them. Yeah, we had one of those in Melbourne at uh, Luna Park called the Rota and, uh, and there were vomiting incidents. But um, the thing was when you'd sort of line up on the wall of this chamber and it would begin to spin, but beforehand you were meant to put all your shoes or whatever, thongs or something, anything that would come loose was meant to be put in this sort of uh, little container, an open container in the middle of the Rota. <laughs> I can see where this is heading. Yeah, they wouldn't stay there all the time, and you know, if you cocked, you cocked, you know, a size nine thong in the face, <laughs> while you, and you can't move. You know, you're in the road, you're kind of pinned. You're just a target. You know, talking um, of talking of circuses, I love those things. Talking of things getting totally out of control. Does anybody disagree with me when I say that this is quite the most rubbish? president we've ever seen in our lifetime in Joe Biden. 33% <laughs> approval rating. Uh, as Ben Shapiro pointed out in the week, there are forms of bowel cancer that are more popular <laughs> than Joe Biden right now. And what's he doing? What's he, what's, he, what's he there for? What's he achieving apart from driving the Democratic Party ever further around the U-Bend are making them even more unelectable. It's just troubling in a way. I mean, this is the leader of the free world. Yeah, it? mate, but you're forgetting this is the guy who's, who's, who gathered more votes than any president in history. I mean, you know, surely, surely there's some sort of popularity base there. It's just, wait, it's just waiting to be reawakened. You know, this, this, you know, this huge... Hillary wants a piece of that action now. That's how bad Biden is. He's reanimated the corpse, the political corpse that is Hillary Clinton. And she's actually thinking, hey, you know, this guy is so, so shockingly, appallingly, dismally bad that I look good by comparison. Me, Hillary Clinton, the worst candidate ever. Maybe I'm pop more popular than the worst president ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, anybody running against a corpse is going to come out <laughs> top, right? They've got a bit of breath in their lungs, aren't they? I, I think that's probably... Hillary's one advantage, um, but he's having a bad. He's having a pretty bad time though, because I mean, at, I mean, just to be a bit more serious, it, you know, Putin is really 
testing Biden yeah. right now with these troops on the sure Ukraine is. border. Yeah. And the, mm. the way I see it is that there's only two possible outcomes from, from this. One is Putin will invade Ukraine and no one will do anything about it because no one's really got up for a fight these days. Yeah. Uh, and Ukraine's not really, you know, a sort of uh, treasured part of uh, the, the European uh, community. The other is that um, no one will call Putin's bluff and uh, NATO will agree, the US and NATO will agree that Ukraine will never be part or cannot be part of NATO, which is, you know, what, what this is really about. Mm. Either way, Putin wins. And Biden will look weak because he's already he's pretty much already backed down from this fight. And when that happens, Xi Jinping is going to look at it and go, well, that's that was my test case. It's time to uh, time to mobilize the troops and take on Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the man was a lame duck before he even stepped into office. But I, I don't recall a president, a sitting president being written off for a second term so quickly. Nobody but nobody thinks he's going to run again for a second term and nobody's quite sure who might. And if it's Hillary Clinton's the answer, watch the question. But um, his popularity amongst uh, Hispanic voters is, is 24%. It's like through the floor. Yeah. And that's huge in places like, uh, you know, it's been the Democrat Party's dream for decades that they would turn Texas into a Democrat state. And... Uh, one uh, reason why they've always been pushing for weak immigration control is to get the Hispanic vote up in places like Texas. That's right, and yet it's, it's moving very quickly against them. Well, that's right, but what they've never considered is that um, Hispanic Americans are small business people, culturally and socially conservative people, religious people, uh, and like all human beings, they kind of don't admire incompetence, and that's all they're seeing. So yeah, their attempts to their attempts basically they attempted to buy votes with welfare from a community that doesn't want welfare. I think the big change with Biden lately is that he has always, wrongly or rightly, or sorry, correctly or incorrectly, um, portrayed himself or tried to portray himself as just the nice bloke. You know, I'm the good yeah. guy. Everyone else is is sort of you know corrupt and so on. I'm just Uncle Joe, but uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that he's he's not a nice man. Yeah, he's more like Uncle Joe in the Stalin sense than Uncle Joe in the you know the friendly guy who drops by at Christmas. Yeah, I mean he, the the man is 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 corrupt and morally bereft, and I say that on the evidence of uh, a fantastic book I've just finished reading. Hunter Biden's laptop by Miranda Devine. We're going to have Miranda on the program, fingers crossed, next week to talk about the book. But she, in forensic detail, goes through what was on Hunter Biden's laptop when it was found. She's got a she's got a strong stomach to go through a lot of that stuff. I tell you what, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know it's morally morally corrupt stuff. But the old man Joe Biden is implicated on every page as being behind this as being involved in sharing the proceeds of questionable money from China, from other supporters. You'd think it would lead to a president being indicted if, if, if that sort of thing happened. But well, one of, happen one, of, one of Hunter's best friends has just been charged with high treason in Kazakhstan. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, does it? You know, 
Hi, Treason. I'm just glad that um, Joe didn't turn up in any of the porn clips with uh, hookers. That would have been that would have been a bit much. But you know, maybe we haven't found everything on that laptop yet. They've got big memories. Look, before we wrap up, Tim the Cricket, how are we doing? Uh, oh God, I just saw Travis Head get hit in the head. He should change his name to Bat. <laughs> Poor bloke. God, that, that would have hurt. Ouch. Okay. Well, my closing point would be I've actually, for the first time in my life, lost interest in the Ashes. I've been a, you know, I've never been much of a cricket fan, Tim, I've got to confess, um, but I've always been deeply passionate about the Ashes. But since cricket went woke, uh, I just can't, uh, I just can't muster any interest in the competition anymore. Is that a bad thing, mate? Am I, is that un-Australian? Should I be deported? All right. No, it's not un-Australian. In fact, you, you, if your lack of interest probably identifies you as a potential candidate to be a member of the England team. <laughs> They've spent most of the summer showing bugger all interest. I'm going to take the opposite take. I very much enjoyed this, this series this year, partly, I suppose, because I actually watched it. I mean, having been confined to the sofa by a broken collarbone, I, I've been, uh, you know, not been able to move much. I've quite enjoyed the, the Melbourne and the Sydney tests. Uh, I kind of got back into it again mm. after a while. So, you know, Who do you bear yes. it for, mate? Australia, of course, is uh, <laughs> the country of my citizenship. Well, our, our, our mutual friend, Steve Waterson, he was of the belief when he moved to Australia, became an Australian citizen, that he had to live in Australia for longer than he'd lived in the UK before he could support the Australian cricket team. And he kept to that. But tragically for him, the timing didn't work out. I think that crossover point when he became an Australian supporter was 2005 when we lost the Ashes for the first time in about 15 years. So <laughs> he uh, came in at the wrong time. It was uh, just a bad timing issue. Anyway, there's the cricket. There's the tennis. Uh, this is the Six Clots Will. You can email us at nick at radiobwc.com. Thank you for everybody who's got in touch to say they like this show. Now you've got a few things that... You can help us with number one, subscribe to us, uh, give us a like tick, five stars on Apple iTunes or your podcast provider. Number two, tell all your friends. And that way we'll send the algorithm north. Uh, algorithms, I don't really understand them, but they govern the world these days and they govern the popularity of podcasts. So it's very important that we keep the algorithm happy. We hope you've enjoyed uh, today's or, episode. Or algorithm and blues, as how we would call it. <laughs> and uh, late news just in Tim uh, as we record this I just see you're flashing up on the screen the latest news on Djokovic yes this is the headline from the Herald Sun Djokovic will be deported Hawk kicks out world number one that's Alex Hawk of course we haven't uh, gone back into the afterlife uh, he said his visa cancelled for a second time casting serious doubt over whether he can play in the Australian Open yeah it would, it would do that I think when your visa's cancelled but um uh, as we've seen, Djokovic's um, sense of competitiveness is shared by his broader legal team, and it's most likely not ending with that announcement. All the news as it breaks here on the Six O'Clocks will first fast and factual, or first fast and factuous, as we used to say. But uh, thank you for listening to the Six O'Clocks will, and join us again next week. This was the Six O'Clock Swirl with Nick Cater, Tim Blair and Fred Paul, the podcast desperately in need of adoption by a sponsor. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, if you'd like to advertise on this podcast or in any way contribute to the great, great product that is the Six O'Clock Swirl, please contact me at nick at radiobwc.com.
cada vez que pienso en ti Me siente como el cielo No puedo dejar de pensarte Cada vez que pienso en ti Me siente como el cielo No puedo dejar de pensarte